So our 14-month-old Jude is learning to walk. Uh, we've got a few either early walkers or soon-to-be walkers in here. A couple weeks ago, he, he took his first steps, and there's a, you know, obviously that's adorable. Uh, all of us were there. None of us remember it, but you've seen it. Um, and and it, it's also terrifying uh, because there's sharp objects and there's stairs and there's things. And the, the, the word that really sums it up as I think of my son's walking experience is wobbly, right? You could say that he's walking or you could say that he's really just like falling forward over and over again, right? He's wobbly. It, it also doesn't help that when, when you're that age, your, your head is is disproportionately large for your body. So you're kind of, you've got the, the head sway thing going on. And so it's, it's this wobbly walk. It's, it's a lot of falling forward. And therefore, he, he needs uh, mom and dad around him constantly to help him. And as I was, I've just been watching him over the last couple weeks, I've been thinking, that's a lot like my spiritual walk. Right? And if you're honest, it's like yours too. Sometimes we think that the, our walk with God is this sort of straight line upwards towards victory and glory. But if we're honest, in reality, it's really wobbly, right? Sometimes we don't know, are, are we really walking or are we just falling forward? As we consider the, the sins of our own life, as we consider the sins of others against us, or just the sufferings in this world... Hopefully we realize as we are on this journey of faith, as we are learning to walk with God, we are, we are so needy of God to be there as a loving parent to hold us up, to teach us to walk. And this, this certainly describes Abram's walk. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, wobbly, falling forward in need of God's help. And as we continue in Genesis this morning, we're, we're seeing Abram learn to walk by faith. And just as a side note, I'm probably going to say Abram, I'm probably going to say Abraham, same guy, okay? He gets a name change in a few chapters, I can't be consistent on that. But just by way of review, what do we know about Abram so far? Well, he is a man who in chapter 12, he heard the call and promise of God loud and clear in his life. God told him, God chose him and told him that he's going to make him into a great nation, He's going to bless him and through him and through the nation that he becomes, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so he began to walk with God. He began by believing, he had faith in the promises of God and he followed God into the promised land. Then almost immediately, same chapter, end of chapter 12, things get really wobbly for Abram. There's a, there's a famine, and he leaves the land that he really never should have left, and he goes to Egypt during this famine, and he falls. He, he becomes fearful of Pharaoh, and he, he wavers in his faith in God. He acts cowardly and lies about his wife, Sarai, and he tells Pharaoh that she is his sister, because she's so beautiful, he's afraid. If he knows that it's his wife, he's going to kill Abram. And take her in. So Pharaoh takes Sarai into his harem. Completely sells out his wife in cowardly fear. He wobbles and falls. But by God's grace, he intervenes and delivers them. 
And that brings us to our passage this morning. We're going to look at the entirety of chapter 12, or chapter 13 and 14. And what we're seeing here is Abram is encountering more tests of his faith. He's learning, again, how to walk by faith in God. As the Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what Abram's learning as we continue in this passage this morning, that's what we need to learn as well. And here's, here's what's so encouraging about this. After that failure in chapter 12, we see by God's grace, Abram responds in chapters 13 and 14 to these tests with a surprising faith that's exemplary to us. He starts to get his, his footing, so to speak, as he trusts God. And more importantly, we don't just learn from his example. More importantly, Abram points us to the God who upheld him and upholds us by his all-powerful hand as we're on this journey of walking by faith. So that's the question we're asking. That's the title of the sermon this morning, How to Walk by Faith. How do we do that? And as we look at these two chapters, we're going to see four things. I'm going to go ahead and put them on the screen for you. First, how do we walk by faith? We continue in repentance. You see that in the first part of chapter 13. Second, we cultivate humility Verses 5 through 18 of chapter 13, we'll see that. Third, we care for the wayward in verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 16. And then finally, we cherish God above all else in that last part of chapter 14. So let's jump in and consider Abram's walk here. Number one, we learn from Abram what it means to continue in repentance. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, And all that he had, and lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made the altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now remember, this is with the backdrop of his failure in Egypt in mind. He has just failed there, and now he is going back to Canaan. He goes back to the Negev, the place where God called him and sent him in the first place. That's where he was in chapter 12, verse 9, before he left Egypt. And then in verse 3, we see that he goes back to the place near Bethel, which is where he was in chapter 12, verse 8. And we have to see this. It's easy to sort of skip over this as just geographical description. It's more than that. It's a spiritual working in Abram that is leading him to change his direction. He's not just saying, well, man, things didn't really go well in Egypt, so I guess I'll just go back home now and hit the reset button. No, his actions are declaring, I have sinned against God. I've failed to believe his promises. God, I need to return to you. So he goes back. Now you say, how, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 4. He's not just returning to a place. right? He's returning to a person. Verse 4 says, And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Just as he did at first. This is what the Bible calls repentance. It means to turn from sin and self-rule to God in his rule for your life. And what Abram does here is he physically demonstrates what's going on in his heart. 
and he goes back to God. And for us, as we think about repentance, maybe you've heard that word before, maybe, maybe not, but if you, if you have, we tend to think of this as something that's, that's only for the, the beginning of the Christian life, right? You repent and believe, and then, you know, you move on to other things, right? You live for God and all of those sorts of things. We, we sort of think of it as the on-ramp to walking by faith, but then we, we move on. And yes, it is, absolutely. Repentance is the on-ramp to walking by faith. We turn from our sin and self-rule to God, to Christ and his rule on our life. We trust in his work on the cross for us. But it's also the guardrails on that highway of faith. Because you and I are trying to veer off every day. Martin Luther was a German monk who saw a, a drift away from God's word in the church. And in 1517, he wrote 95 theses, these short statements of truth. And the goal was, his hope was to bring the church back to the scriptures. And the first thesis says simply this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Does that describe your life, Christian? Constantly returning back to God. Now, please don't, please don't mishear me here. What we're not saying, what the Bible doesn't teach, is that you enter into salvation again and again every time you mess up. That's not what continuing in repentance means. That would make our salvation dependent not upon us, or not upon Christ, but upon us. But if we're going to walk by faith... We must return to the Lord continually. Why? Because let's be honest, we sin continually. And I think one of the reasons this is so difficult for us is because we live in a world that tells us, you know what, Kevin, you're just, you're not that bad. Yeah, you make mistakes. Yeah, you do wrong things. But no one's really a bad person. And so when we sin, we hear a message that says, you know, it's really, that's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Or, or, you know what, you can do better next time. Just, just sort of find it within yourself to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and work harder and, and you'll get it next time. Or, you know what, it wasn't, it wasn't your fault. And here, Abram does none of those things. His return and rebuilding of this altar, his calling out to God again is his way of saying, listen, I tried in my own strength and I messed everything up. I damaged my relationship with God and with those around me. It was a disaster. I have no one to blame. It was my fault. Lord, I've sinned against you and I repent. And here's the beauty of God's grace. He always hears and joyfully welcomes repentant sinners. He never turns them away. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Why? That he may have compassion on him and to our God. Why? For he will abundantly pardon. You're here this morning, if you're honest, and you are wearing burdens of your sins. And you're saying, what do I do with them? And God's word says, Call out to him. Seek him while he may be found. Turn to him. Repent and face towards him. And he 
includes the promise that he'll abundantly pardon. I love that. Not scarcely pardon, not reluctantly pardon, not deficiently pardon, but abundantly take away your sin, forgive you. And a key test for us of walking by faith is found in this question. Does your sin drive you away from God or does it drive you to God? See, if you recognize that you've fallen short of God's glory and that you've sinned, but it drives you away from him, then you're revealing that you're trusting in your own goodness, not in God. You're saying, I've sinned against you, God. I need to... I need to fix this before I come to you. But if like Abram, your faith rests on God, the recognition of your sin will drive you back to the altar. Back to him in repentance and a renewed faith. Because why? You know know that he's standing there ready to welcome you with open arms. Ready to abundantly forgive you. You. So to walk by faith, we must continue in repentance. That's number one. Number two, to walk by faith, faith we must cultivate humility. Now let's read on in verse five. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Perizzite, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. All right? So new scene here. In verse 2, we read that Abram grew rich in silver and gold and livestock. He's, he's growing wealthy. His family is growing. Lot, his nephew, is also, uh, his family's growing. His wealth is growing. So much so that there is some sort of disagreement between the herdsmen. There's not enough space for grazing and taking care of these animals, which was their wealth. And then again, notice in verse 7 that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now this shows us that this promise to Abram of the land is still not, hasn't come to fruition yet. Even though he's living there, there's other people occupying the land. And the point here is that they've run out of room. And if anything, we who live in the greater Boston area understand, it's that it's easy to run out of room and living space, right? I have six children, right? Or, or maybe you think of, of the pandemic the last year. You're like, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my roommates, whatever, but please get me out of this house, right? Well, think of that, but on a larger scale. There's just not enough room for them. And so how does Abram respond to this? Look at verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll take the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now notice what Abram does. He initiates peacemaking with Lot. He essentially says, hey, listen, we're family. We shouldn't be at odds like this, so here's what we're going to do. And this is where the story gets a bit surprising for us because Abram could have easily exercised his authority as the head of the family and as the recipient of God's promises. He could could have easily said, hey, listen, Lot, I don't know who you think you are, but this is Uncle Abe's land. So if you and your herdsmen have a problem with grazing, then you tell them to figure it out, but I am the one who's the recipient of the promise and the blessing. 
you're lucky that you're even here. He could have done that. That would have been understandable. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? Instead, he strives to make peace with Lot, and he's generous to him. He says, you choose. And whatever you choose, I'll go the other way. Now, Abram responds here with humility. Now, why does he do that? Because he is secure in God's promises. God's already given him the land. Sure, not yet, but he, he knows that God promised him this. So he's walking by faith and not by sight. He doesn't need to jockey for what God has already promised him with his nephew. Instead, he positions himself as a servant of his nephew Lot. And in doing so, he shows us what it means to walk by faith in humility. Now Lot, on the other hand, as we'll see in his response, he shows us the opposite. He shows us, if Abram shows us what it means to walk by faith in humility, Lot shows us what it means to walk by sight and pride. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So what does Lot do? He looks up. He, he doesn't say, you know what, Uncle Abe, you're the recipient of the promise. Yeah, I know. Well, you, you just tell me where to go. Lot... Abram's like, choose, and Lot's like, all right, cool. I'm going to pick the, the most beautiful, luscious area. And then notice what happens in this text. We see some, some things here that reveal to us what's going on in Lot's heart. Look back at verse 11. It tells us that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the land, a land like the garden of the Lord. What's Moses doing for us here? He's drawing our minds back to Genesis 3. Do you remember someone else lifting up their eyes in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, when they faltered in their faith and began living by sight. Verse 6 of Genesis 3 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Lot's only thinking about what looks good in earthly terms. He's not thinking about walking by faith in God and obeying his will. We're told again that Lot journeyed east to settle. It's another theme we've seen throughout Genesis. This movement eastward represents a distancing from God. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden east of Eden. Cain, after he killed his brother left the presence of the Lord and went east of Eden. And here, what do we see Lot doing? He's moving eastward and he's moving toward a wicked people. Moses gives us a parenthetical note about the wickedness of those in Sodom. They were wicked, great sinners. That sounds very Bostonian, I understand. But do you hear, you hear what they're saying? There's, there's sinners, there's great sinners, and there are sinners who are so wicked that's why Moses describes them that way. And what does Lot do? He goes right to the edge of 
He's being allured by what looks good and tantalizing. So he's inching towards sin. In the next chapter, we'll see in a moment, by chapter, verse 12, he actually goes from the edge of Sodom to inside the city. And that's what pride does. It, it blinds us from the reality of God and his promises and gives us false promises of satisfaction and fleeting and earthly things. So this leads us to, to look at our own hearts, right, and ask, ask the question, in what ways are we tempted to pridefully walk by sight instead of humbly walking by faith? Think about that in your own life right now. Pridefully walking by sight says, oh man, I just need more money. Humbly walking by faith says, no, if God blesses me, praise the Lord, but God is my portion forever. Psalm 73, 26. Pridefully walking by sight says, if I could just win the argument. You guys know what I'm talking about. Where you're arguing for days, you're like, I forgot what we're even arguing about. But I just need to win. If I could just be right. But walking by faith and humility says, consider others more important than yourselves. Philippians 2, 3. Pridefully walking by sight says, if I could just please others, if I could just have that affirmation. Walking by faith says the pleasure of God is the only thing that matters, Galatians 1.10. Walking by sight says if I could just get away with this sin, that's what Lot's doing, just get up to the edge of it. Walking by faith says if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8.13. So Abram chooses not what's immediately fulfilling and, and tantalizing. Lot does. Abram rests on the promises of God. And look how God responds to him. Verse 14. So Lot's gone. And the Lord says to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. What is God doing? He's saying, Lot chose this little land over here, but let me remind you of my promise. And let me show you what I'm giving you. This is what will be yours. And if we, like Abram, cultivate a humble faith, we will, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, will look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We'll find our ultimate hope humbly in eternal things. That's number two. Now what happens to Lot? This leads us to number three. We see Lot get into the sticky situation here. Number three, we see to walk by faith means to care for the wayward. So as we come to chapter 14... We see that we didn't read this part. If you thought the names that John read were tough, uh, go back and try and read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 14 aloud later, and then someone can laugh at you as they listen. But what's happening here? 
Well, there's this battle between a number of kings in the region at the time. Shedderlaomer and other, a number of other kings make war against the king of Sodom and a number of other kings with him. So it's five against four. And they're, they're these sort of um, pirate kings who were like mercenary-like kings who would conquer certain areas and pillage and they're banding together for this uprising and there is this war and we see the, one of the casualties here is that the king of Sodom loses the battle and in verse 12, they take Lot. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was, where was he dwelling? Not on the edge of Sodom, like in, verse 13, in chapter 13, but in Sodom. And they took his possessions, they take him captive, and then they leave. So a survivor from this Lord of the Rings, two towers-like battle, gets away and comes to Abram and tells him all of this in verse 13. And what does Abram do? He suits up for battle. And we're told by this time he has 318 trained warrior men in his household, though I don't think they were really warriors. It says trained men means they may have had some training, but they weren't, certainly weren't like these other kings who just took Lot captive. We're told also that he has allies in the Amorites, and so he, he brings them together, the sort of ragtag army, and they pursue and strategize and defeat these kings in the middle of the night, and they rescue Lot. Now, if you're reading this and, and thinking of chapter 12, you might have the question I had. What in the world happened to Abram from chapter 12 to chapter 14? You remember what happened in chapter 12 where he's cowering in fear before Pharaoh? So much so that he tells a cowardly lie. He, he gives up his own wife. Yet here, he boldly risks it all. He's clearly outnumbered. And he's like, I'm, we're going to go after these four warrior kings. Why are we going to do it? To rescue one man, one member of his family, who, by the way, just disrespected him. So what, what happened to Abram? Here's what I think happened. Abram experienced the rescue of God himself in such a way that it put a steel in his spine and a love in his heart for others who need to be rescued. I think that's what happened between chapter 12 and chapter 14. He is motivated. God delivered him and his family from the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. God welcomed him back as he repented. God continued to be faithful to his promises and so he says, I'm motivated to walk by faith in God and just as God has rescued me, I'm gonna go after Lot. So he risks it all and he goes after him. See, walking by faith means we go after those who are in need of rescue. Why? Because we have been rescued. This is the message of the gospel in a miniature form. Consider this. Abram goes after his captive kinsmen. What did Christ come to do? To set captives like you and me free. Abram seems outnumbered. You're supposed to get that sense here. 318 warriors and some other mercenaries against four kings who just wiped out five armies. Likewise, when we look at Christ, as we consider Good Friday, it may have looked like he was outnumbered, that he lost the battle, but what did God do? God raised him from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. God did that for us. Abram finds Lot, and he restores back to him all that has, lost, has been lost. Is that not what Jesus has done for us? 
Did he not pursue us, rescue us by laying down his life and restore us back, we who believe, to the presence of God? Abram is acting very Christ-like here in his pursuit of wayward Lot. His remembrance of his own rescue fuels his mission to rescue his nephew. And church, the same, the same is for us. I think there's two simple ways we can apply this principle in our own lives. First, we can think about it within the church, within the family of believers. We are to lovingly pursue wayward brothers and sisters, wayward members of the family who are drifting into sin. Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul's saying when you do that, you are being Christ-like when you pursue the wayward. We live in such an individualistic culture, I fear that we easily abdicate this responsibility. A brother and sister drifts away and begins pursuing sin or we see them in, in, in a situation, we have questions and we, we say, well, you know, we'll pray for them. But it's really not my business. That's what our culture tells us. It's all about you. It's not your business. Now, would you say that if your child was running into oncoming traffic? It's an individual. It's really not my business. No, of course not. Because you love them, what would you do? You would go after them. Warn and rescue. Because you don't want to see them distant from God. That's what Abram does here. And friends, that's what Christ does for us. And walking by faith means we must do that with one another. But there's another way we can apply this principle, not, not necessarily within the family of the church, but also outside of the church as we consider the mission of God. Christ's rescue and pursuit of us should be the fuel in our tank for evangelism, sharing the gospel with those who are far from Christ. Just ask yourself, have you have you talked to a non-Christian about Jesus lately? If not, why not? Now I understand there may be all sorts of, of reasons why not. And I don't know your situation, but could I submit to you that maybe one of the reasons you're not passionate about taking the gospel to those who are far from God is because you've lost sight of just how amazing Christ's grace is for you. Abraham would not have intervened, Lot would have been gone. He didn't deserve it, but he needed. Friends, if Christ had not intervened in our sin, we'd be in hell right now. Or could it be maybe that you're, you're thinking about this in, in a way of walking by by sight and not by faith. Maybe you say, I have friends who I, I, want, I want them to hear about Jesus. I, they're wayward. I want to see them come back. But I just, they're too, they're too opposed. They're, they're too far gone. Or those conversations are just too difficult. Or you know, this whole evangelism thing it just comes across as real arrogant in our culture. Well, friends, that's walking by sight. That's saying, I don't know that God can save that person. I bet if you asked Lot, he was really glad that Abram didn't think, you know what, there's too many men against my army. 
Or you know what, Lot's too far gone. He disrespected me. I'm not going to rescue him. And you and I are certainly glad that Christ didn't say to the Father, they're too far gone to be rescued. See, as we're walking by faith and considering our own rescue in the gospel, we'll have this fuel to pursue and care for those who are wayward, both inside and outside of the church. And then lastly, we'll see the fourth way to walk by faith is to cherish God above all else. Look at verse 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Means I made a commitment to him. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. Now what's happening here? We're meant to see a contrast. After this battle is over, after the rescue of Lot, two kings approach uh, uh, Abram. And there's two sort of different interactions. One is the king of Sodom, the other is the king of Salem. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that word Melchizedek actually means king of righteousness and Salem means peace. So who is this person? We actually don't know a lot about him and I'm going to try and do in like three minutes Uh, what people have done multiple sermons on. But what we do know is that he's a king of righteousness and king of peace, right? He has come, we're told, Moses tells us, as a priest of the most high God. Now, Now think about this other king, the king of Sodom. By the time of this writing, that was a bad word. Sodom meant wickedness. So you have a king of righteousness and peace and a king of wickedness. Both approach Abram. Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God and he blesses Abram. He brings him bread and wine, pictures of God's gracious blessing. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, comes to Abram and he's trying to take from him. He's trying to strike a deal. Verse 21, and the king of Sodom said, give me the persons but you take the goods for yourself. Now remind it, be reminded, the king of Sodom has nothing to offer. He's been defeated. But he's trying to strike a deal. Now this question, who, who is Melchizedek? I'm going to link to some articles in the Weekly Sync for those of you who want to nerd out and dig deeper on it. But well, let's just say this. If you were to look at Psalm 110 and, and Hebrews 7, it makes it very clear, and you can already see it here, that Melchizedek anticipates and points to Jesus Christ. Notice that Abraham blessed God, but how does he bless God? He does it through a priest, He does it through Melchizedek. The only way to access God is through the priest king, the true priest king, the true king of righteousness and peace, Jesus Christ. 
He, he gave his own life as a sacrifice to pay for sin. As we acknowledge each week and will in a moment when we partake the bread and wine at the, last, the Lord's Supper. He's the true king of righteousness. He's the one who defeated our sin by his cross and empty grave. He's the one who, as the hymn says, is before the throne of God above, pleading on our behalf. And so when we look at Melchizedek, we're meant to see Christ. And so when you think of it that way, the offer is this. Does Abram, is he going to choose the blessings of the world or is he going to choose Christ? That's the focus of the story here. And you need to, we need to understand this temptation. Because if he does accept the king of Sodom's offer, what that means is more earthly riches... It means credit for military victory, but the big thing is it means increasing political influence in the land. The temptation there is, Abram, you can get the land quicker. I know God promised it to you, but you can get what you want with this shortcut. All you have to do is partner with a wicked king. I can't help but think of Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade here, the culminating scene where they find the Holy Grail. By the way, this is not in the Bible. If you're like, oh, that, that exists. No, it's a movie. But then they have to choose between a number of different cups and chalices. And the one, the actual Holy Grail, the cup, the, the cup that Christ drank from in the Last Supper, again, not real, fictional, that one brings you life. But if you, do, if you choose the wrong one, you, you die. And the, the bad guy... Walter Donovan, who was a Nazi, as is such in Indiana Jones, he finds the most beautiful cup he can imagine. Right? He finds the one with his jewel encrusted, and he takes it and he says, oh, this is more beautiful than I could imagine. Surely this is the cup of Christ, eternal life. Takes a drink of the water, and immediately, in late 80s movie magic, disintegrates. He ages like a thousand years in two seconds, and he, and he dies. And I love the, the knight that just says there nonchalantly, he chose poorly. And then Dr. Jones, ever the historian, chooses the cup of the carpenter. What does he do? He finds the most unappealing cup. And it ends up being the right choice. And, what, what, and he, so he drinks the cup and he's good and he saves Sean Connery and all. Well, what's the point there? Well, you, you see it. What looks pleasing to the eye immediately can bring you death. And what may seem unappealing and forgotten and meaningless can actually bring you life. Friends, you and I are faced with these kind of choices all the time. Will we buy into the false promises, the, the riches, the pleasures, the ideals of the world that promise security but can give none of it? that promise joy but actually take it and leave us empty? Or will we treasure Christ above all else and rely on his promises even if that means obscurity and hardship in this life? Because we know what's coming is the presence of God where there's fullness of joy. As the Apostle Paul says, I consider all things lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So how does Abram respond? By faith. He cherishes God above all. He recognizes that the victory that he just accomplished belongs to the Lord. 
And we see that because he says, I've made an oath to the Lord that I will give nothing to you, king of Sodom, because it was God's victory. He also acknowledges this by this tithe to the king of righteousness and peace. He gives a tenth of all that he has. And he tells the king of Sodom, you keep your spoils, lest you try to take credit for what God has done. I'm satisfied with my God and his promises to me. May that be true of us. Ian Dugwood notes, he says, faith would rather eat a basic diet of life staples in the company of the righteous than feast in the company of the wicked. Compared to the blessing of God, the offer of worldly status and treasures are nothing more of a distraction to Abram and to you and I. And so as, as we close, I want us to, to consider a warning here. Because as we look back over these lessons from, from Abram here, there's a temptation that we've got to be aware of. We should ask ourselves, am I continuing in repentance? Am I cultivating humility? Am I caring for the wayward? Right? Am I cherishing God above all things? Absolutely. We, that, that's a way to practically process these two chapters. But if we're not careful, we can actually turn these four things into a list of tasks in order to fulfill and earn God's favor. That, that's not what this is. If that happens, if we think our status with God is dependent upon how good we repent or how humble we are, or how good we are at sharing the gospel, then we'll either despair over our failure, or we'll become prideful and arrogant in our supposed achievements. Instead, as we've already seen this in in Genesis, no, Abram failed miserably. He did it in chapter 12, he's going to do it again. And so have you and I. But there is one who did not fail and never will. There's one, Jesus, who did not need to repent because he didn't sin. There's one, Jesus, who fully walked humbly before God and man, who perfectly cared for the wayward and cherished God, the Father, above all things. He walked by faith in a way that Abram couldn't and you and I could never. And he did that for us. The foundational way we walk by faith, the overarching principle over these four things that we see in Abram's life is this, look to Christ. Look to him in faith and feast on him by faith. So I just want to close by reading two verses from Hebrews chapter 12. This is after reflecting on saints like Abraham. And here's what he says, in light of the life of Abram, And all these other Old Testament saints, he says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run the race before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together.